Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post-sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper-Whipfley. And me, Catherine Mahoney. In this episode, we talk to family members about their experiences and sarcoma journeys with loved ones. In part two, we talk to Sue, Henrietta and John. This podcast contains stories of cancer, death and bereavement, which may be distressing to some listeners. Please reach out to your support network if you are affected or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. John, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. John, we're here today to talk about your wife, Sue. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about how the sarcoma presented um, with Sue? Sure. Uh, Sue, um, first let me say, Sue's gorgeous. Uh, So uh, for those listening, uh, imagine a beautiful, vibrant, redhead uh, um, who was sort of beautiful in all respects, love of my life. And, uh, but her sarcoma presented uh, initially as a fibroid. Um, so she had a condition called Lyme sarcoma, which is um, uh, found in the uterus. And, uh, but initially there was no concern at all. Uh, and then, uh she uh, the fibroids were removed they were still slightly concerned so that led to a hysterectomy uh, and then all was fine uh and then about 3 weeks after the hysterectomy was done there was uh, a further biopsy and and they found um that that she had Lyme sarcoma can i ask john how old sue was at the time yeah she's 56 so she's young yeah mm young yeah she was young and sort of in the prime actually mm. of, of her life she had a uh, a very successful career in like every respect uh she you know she was bright she became a lawyer she was smart enough not to like the law uh she uh had uh, she went to paris and was a did fashion design in Paris. Wow. She did. She had retail stores in Hong Kong. Wow. Um, she brought up three kids all the same. You know, at, mm. around that time, good effort, massive effort. And uh, and but then found her true love, which was teaching. So wow. she became a um, a primary school teacher and absolutely. Loved it. How would age did she do that? Uh, she started that. She did a master's in education uh, in her mid forties, and and then went into teaching and just just really. I think that's such a great profession, and someone like Sue, who had a lot to give, uh, was fabulous for her and for her kids. That's wonderful. My mum went to uni actually at forty yeah. and did the same, became yeah. a teacher. I think, um, yes, if you've got to be really passionate, mm. haven't you? Yeah. Gives be, back. Gives yes. a lot back. Yes. Yeah. And so after the hysterectomy, if you don't mind me asking, John, do, was there a consistent pain or what made or was it standard process to have a further? I think actually help? I think that um, uh, the gynecological surgeon was just a little bit concerned. Right. Uh, and that it is standard to have a, a biopsy post-hysterectomy. Um, but I think the, uh, it, they had no idea what they were concerned about, but there was a little bit of concern. Something didn't seem right. Yeah, something didn't seem right. Yeah. And look, Lyomasacoma is, uh, uh, an insidious disease that impacts about one in every three or four million women. Gosh, that's a, so it's a very rare um, condition. And I think in Australia at that time, um, there might have been one other person. Um, was she angry? No. No. Uh, nor was she accepting. But, no, she wasn't angry. 
only once in the journey, which wasn't that long, it was an 11-month sort of time frame, mm-hmm. um, did I, did we ever, or did I ever see Sue uh, riddle with not anger, but just upset? Um, she wasn't disbelief. selfish enough to be upset. Yeah, right. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was just all about, um, not, we were at someone's wedding, actually, a kid, a friend of family's wedding, and it was a lovely occasion. Uh, it was in Berry. It was all mm-hmm. very pretty. It was, you know, really, really lovely. And Sue and I, Sue, uh, it was three months before Sue died, and, and, um, and that, the realization that she wasn't going to share those moments with our kids. Of course. I think, um, was really the only time that she, she showed genuine frustration. Yeah. Yeah. Unfair. Mm. How are the kids? Kids are, kids are fantastic. Uh, and it's again a credit to Sue because she's prepared them, uh, very well. And uh, we've got three kids, um, a daughter who's 27. Uh, she, her reaction to Sue's dying was to get on with things because that's what Sue told her to do. We've got a 25 year old boy who's, uh, again, got on with everything. And, uh, and we've got a 22 year old who just finished university and he, he's, he's done very well. They've all stood up. I saw I saw a great moment at a, a friend's mum's funeral, mm-hmm. and they started the funeral by uh, her husband standing up and saying, "Could everybody stand up and give a standing applause um, for what Jackie had done?" Mm-hmm. And it was a great way of of recognizing exactly what you're talking about of what she'd set up mm-hmm. for the family and the generation and the team that you guys are. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, I think everyone's sort of jarred by that sadness, which is a natural place to be in, in a moment when you're grieving. But the minute you can catch your breath and go, wow, yeah. look at this. But it's true. And there's, and there's a lot to celebrate. You know, genuinely there's mm-hmm. a, a – uh, Look what you've built. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, yesterday – uh, it was Sue's birthday, so it's a funny old time. What did you do? Do you mind if I ask? Yeah, we we actually we we're not a family that gets you know we don't celebrate Father's Day. I never remembered <laughs> Mother's Day anniversaries. Yeah, neither Sue or I knew what our date sure. we got married on. So, it, but birthdays, <clears throat> birthdays, and particularly Sue's birthday, we always would celebrate. So we had a really lovely night. Um, you know, in this COVID world, we found a restaurant that take us, and we mm. uh, we really slap up dinner. Good on you, and a uh, lot of laughs and a lot of memories. So, but there is a lot to celebrate. Uh, even though Kath, you mentioned, you know, Sue was young and she was young, but we fitted in a lot. It sounds like sounds you like you live. She yeah. made that happen. Yes. So, I, yeah. It was it, no life should be taken, and, and the natural order of things wasn't right. But but you can't complain about how lucky we were as a couple. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That's I love wonderful that. I love that that you recognise that. Yeah, um, John. You know, you've, there's obviously been some time since you lost Sue. But but when you first lost her, how how did you cope? Uh, look, I, I was in a bit of a whirlwind. Um, I think uh, after you know all the funeral arrangements and um, family members, Sue's family, she was from Perth, they'd gone home, and my family from Melbourne had gone home, and things had you know sort of settled. I, what I did was throw myself into work, and I, I assume that's a fairly mm. typical reaction because it's a great place to hide. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm lucky. We, we've, I've got two software businesses. Um, one's actually in medical software right. and, and trying to deal with the, the 
terrible issue about silos in medicine. But, um, but, but I threw myself into that and I threw myself into a stupid project that Sue and I, you know, we talked about the house. Um, you know, we'd been wanting to do the kitchen up for 10 years. And for some reason, oh, no, you didn't decide oh, to renovate, bang. did you? Oh, no. So I, I went, oh, I went, get nuts. it done. <laughs> yeah, got it done. Um, oh, but, um, pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I just threw myself into those sorts of things. Do you, do you mind me asking, did you ever reach out to a, a counselor or a psychologist? Yeah, that's really, on? that's a good question. Um, and I'm a, I'm a cynic about, uh, or had been a cynic about counsellors, uh, until I went to see my GP um, about seven months after Sue had died. And I realised that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't myself. I wasn't stable. I was, uh, I was struggling. Mm. And I wasn't admitting it to anybody. But I've got this fantastic lady who's uh, the GP and and she recommended going to see um, a grief counsellor. And I sort of surprised myself because I became open to it all of a sudden, mm-hmm. um, having, you know. Deep down maybe you thought you just you knew that you needed help. Yeah. And so that's what I did. Makes sense. And I've done that for the last uh, – I've seen this fantastic woman for the last uh, six months, every three weeks, and I, 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 I don't know if it makes a difference, but I feel better. I so, hope she's not listening. Yeah, <laughs> she's terrific, and, and she's got to listen to all my you know, mm. rubbish. So, Do you I look forward for to it. going? That's a great question. I don't. You don't? And I feel flat. Afterwards, right. But actually, I feel much better. You know, sort of forty-eight hours after. Sure, sure. So, but um, I see it coming up in my diary, and I think, oh, you know, really. And but I go, I then feel flat, and then I realise actually I feel a bit unburdened. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's a for me, and everyone is obviously different. For me. I think it was great advice and a really good process. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really powerful, um, especially for, for people listening who might be walking your your path or a similar path. Because as a woman, you know, I'll go, I'll go to a counsellor for, for mm-hmm. the drop of a hat, level up to go and chat to yeah. someone. Um, and I think women are find that easier on the whole. I know I'm generalising, but I think it is important for maybe some of the men listening you didn't want to go, but you went, and it has. Yeah. It's it's been a benefit. Yeah. Look, I think men are getting, you know, my age. You know, I'm I'm I've just turned sixty, and my uh, age group of men are, are you know, maybe we're just different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, younger and and not much younger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but uh, you know, we've got this reputation of not being able to really talk at the same level as as women talk with each other. And I think that's true. Uh, in my circumstance, it, it's true. I've got wonderful friends, r- wonderful friends who care enormously. But the conversation can be superficial because no one really wants to pry because they don't want to hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And... And so this process um, with the grief counsellor, I think, actually complements the other very well. Really, really great point that you've touched on because everybody has been in a situation where they know that they're standing next to work with friends with someone that's lost somebody and they don't know whether to say something to break their mood. You think, Oh my God, they could be having a good day. And then all of a sudden, because I've said, I'm so sorry to hear about your loss, they're taken back down. Uh, I, I'm guilty of that 10 times over, but all the studies that I've, I've, I've read, uh, Lee Sales talks about this a lot. Uh, in her book, she says, say something. Well, I think that's right. Uh, and it doesn't matter how clumsy you are. Like I'm, you know, I'm clumsy. We're all clumsy. But what my experience is, I, 
Sue had this extraordinary uh, number of people that her lives she touched, mm. uh, which was evidenced. We, you know, that we had a celebration of her life, 500 people or something. Wow. Like that. It was like massive. But people would just text and they might, or call, or see me in the street and they, or see me at the supermarket and they'd mm-hmm. say something. And it, you felt better. Okay. And it's good to know. So I think it, I think it, it is, even though I do it clumsily, I think it's important to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important yeah. for everyone to hear because yeah, you, uh, everybody doesn't know the answer to that, mm. you know. Um, John, did you, did you find your friendship groups changed, um, when, when you lost Sue? Oh, um, no. I didn't find they changed, uh, but I found I had more friends, which is really lovely. So a lot of Sue's friends, mm-hmm. who I just sort of regarded as Sue's friends. Sure. Um, they were so warm and, and, and so welcoming and so caring. They mm-hmm. just check in. And, uh, and, and that was terrific. And then that even extended to things like, you know, Sue's school. She taught at a, a, a school in Camerake or Camerae Public. And, and the, the teachers were incredible, uh, with mm-hmm. just reaching out, checking in. You know, anyway, the, no, I, I think my friendship group grew. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People are good. Mm. And when with the kids, do you guys chat about it much? Yeah, do you do a how's everyone going? Yeah, we we do. And what I've tried to do is make Sue part of the conversation. Um, I can understand other people that might try and black that out, and because it's easier to. Yeah, uh, and sometimes you feel a bit weird. <laughs> um, uh, saying something, but for me, it comes out very naturally, you know, referencing Sue, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we did that or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and I think with the kids, that works a treat, um, because it encourages them to do it. And, and, and they do. Uh, so. Yeah. So like, you know, I mentioned Sue's birthday last night. Mm. Last night, um, yeah, it was almost like Sue was in the room. So. Because you would also see that, you know, the personality traits of Sue coming yeah. through in the kids too, yeah. and the little We're, things exactly they do. Exactly right. Expressions, yeah. the looks. And, yeah. Well, and look, you know, I mentioned at the outset that Sue had this, you know, fabulous, uh, flame of hair, mm. red hair. And, uh, both my sons, uh, do. Mm-hmm. And it's quite funny to watch them and watch their, uh, you know, even, you know, the way that their phraseology, not yeah, just sure. the way they look. It, it, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's great. Isn't and that then talking talk to my daughter this morning, you know, you know, she's all over all the US issues. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, again, you just see it comes through yep. in so many ways. Anyway, fantastic. Which is lovely. Yeah, really it is lovely. great. Yeah. Um, John, what do you believe Sue's legacy to be? Her legacy uh, is probably wisdom, I think. Uh, she was an incredibly good listener. And so a lot of people would seek her advice. Right. Comfortable opening up to yeah. her. And she wouldn't give advice unless she was asked. But, and the advice wasn't dogmatic or you must do this. The, the advice was, uh, more, you might consider this. And the difference is quite significant. Mm-hmm. And I think I, so I, I, uh, I, I've learned a lot. From Sue, I've changed a lot since you know uh, we started going out a long, 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 long time ago, uh, and I think her legacy is with her kids, our kids, and her friends, 
and I, I think wisdom is a really good word. I think I think people she's helped people consider. I see it in our kids now that they are much more careful with views, with uh, considering both sides, forming a view and having a strong view once they've gone through a process. But the process is kind of important. Yeah. I spoke to a reverend once and he his job was bringing comfort and dealing with people at times um, before they passed. Mm. And I said to him, what do you say? What do you do? How do you make somebody feel okay about leaving, in essence? And there's not an answer to that question. Um, what I thought was interesting, though, we spoke on the podcast to a mother and who had lost her daughter. And she was very matter of fact that there'd been time to talk, you know, and she was comforted by the fact that there was no more to say. You know, the daughter was also comforted by that as well. Mm. So there was this beautiful relationship mm. where they knew that life had thrown them the ultimate spanner. Mm. You know, it wasn't fair at all, but that's what it was. Mm. Uh, and it was lovely to hear that that comfort was sort of granted to them in a sense because they were so close. Mm. You know, did you have those conversations which which helped with her passing? Analyzing that, I'm cross with myself because. I listened to Sue on everything. We had an incredibly symbiotic relationship. Mm. She was, we had a genuinely fantastic partnership. Mm. She balanced me. But I didn't, I sort of refused to believe that she was going to die. Of course, naturally. And so she knew she was going to die. And she, I'm an eternal optimist. Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. So Miracles I happen. I, yeah, and there's no problem. I didn't think, you know, I'm as arrogant as, you know, <laughs> very arrogant. And I, there's no problem I can't solve. Yep. So I've gone around and um, I know that, uh, you know, I understand Lyme Musicoma. I've done all the research. My daughter is a brilliant researcher and she's completely on top of every issue. Mm -hmm. Sue's side of the family of medical. Her father was the, uh, you know, President of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. He's a very wow. eminent guy. Sister is a, is a, a prominent women's doctor. Mm -hmm. She's very bright. And, but there had to be a solution. Yep. The only person that didn't think there was a solution was Sue. Mm. And she accepted that. And then so to answer your question, I'm disappointed myself that I didn't listen to the fact she knew what was happening mm -hmm. and I, I was running around trying to make something else happen and I would have benefited, I think, by letting her better prepare us or me in particular for her dying. In hindsight, because what she did in, in a way is probably – uh, even you're going through the, the process still now of mending yourself, right? And that's mm. natural. That's grieving. That's, that's meant to happen mm. or we'd be heartless. Um, but at the same time, Sue knew what you were like. And I'm exactly the same as you. Mm. I can fix anything. Mm. I don't care how big it is. Someone tells me it can't be done. It can be done. Yeah. Yep. I'm not going to listen to you, you, you or you. Yeah. So naturally that's what you're going to go and do. So it was nice that the relationship <laughs> continued the way you guys celebrated and lived well, to the fullest. That's absolutely Because she would have been saying, well, I know what John's going to do. That, that puts a, <laughs> that puts a lovely gloss on it. But, but it it's is. true. It is. And I actually think she, in that way, Protected me. Yeah. It's a form of protection mm. and it's nice that you guys carried on the relationship like you'd always lived, yeah. Yeah. you know, to the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's what kept you together and what joined you at the hip to start with. Yep. Um, and and the, the combination creates good decisions. Yep. And it creates good outcomes. Mm. And sometimes you don't get the outcome, you know, like in this instant mm. that, that you wanted, but- it actually played into both of our philosophies on life. Sue really died content. Mm -hmm. uh, and at least in my world, 
she died knowing that we'd at least exhausted everything, everything we could, every possible route. You know, Sue was, you know, we, there aren't many experts on Lama sarcoma. No. There are, there are three in the world. God. We spoke to, you know, all three. I went and visited all three. Um, at one point there was a, you know, a, a new um, magical drug. Uh, you couldn't get access to it in Australia. We were fortunate. And we you got we, it. We did, um, but and of course, it, you know, it did. It didn't work. But that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. in a way. It's good that people are. Yep. These 100%. things. Yeah. Uh, and, and one day someone will find a magical drug. Yep. And one day you know, people will benefit from. You know all the work, even you know the the, the work that Tanya's foundation and Sakoma are doing. It's so relevant and so important. Mm. As is this, you know, you sharing your your Absolutely. story is so powerful. John, thank you again for sharing everything you have today. Um, is there anything you would like to pass on to someone who's just starting this journey? Oh, I, well, don't give up. <laughs> I guess. Uh, it's not a hopeless journey. And even if the outcome is that whoever you love doesn't make it, there's an awful lot to be gained in the process. Mm-hmm. There's a richness of a depth of, uh, of emotion that... I think stands you in very good stead uh, going into the future. But, you know, hope's a really important thing, but reality is a really important thing as well. And, you know, the yin and yang with Sue and I was that she was a realist and I lived in hope. But that combination is really important. And and to have both mm. and don't lose sight of both. Completely. Uh, and maintaining that balance, if you can do that, it'd be great. And the other thing that I think I'd pass on is the medical world's foreign language. And I'm not saying anything new. I think everyone understands and, you know, you deal with, with very intelligent, bright, specialist people uh, is is a challenge for all of us. Mm. However, they're just people and they've got views and so do you. Yeah. And I think uh, it's, it's not wrong to ask another view. It's not wrong to search. It's not wrong to feel like, you know, if your instinct is that advice isn't really quite right, well, then go with your instinct. And and it's no reflection on the quality of care. Uh, the, 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 the great challenge in medicine is uh, information and the sharing of information mm-hmm. and the silo nature of, of 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 how medicine operates. Yep. And you know, I often wonder why. You know, Australia's got this amazing opportunity. We've got this incredibly high quality mm-hmm. group of uh, you know, medical researchers and practitioners, and I never understand why we don't see that as an industry in in a way we see other industries and and if we took a we took sarcoma and you know we treated it like the CSIRO and 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 we got you know we had all our experts actually genuinely working together and sharing information together and mm-hmm. the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse actually worked really collaboratively collaboratively yep. with uh, Peter McCullum and and uh, in our circumstance, uh, in Western Australia, we, we, we discovered 
very late in the piece that there was a surgeon there and they were, they'd, they'd created a, a new surgical technique, which no one here had ever heard of. Right. But for sarcomas, it was absolutely fantastic. But no one no had, was talking. Yeah, no one was talking. And when I went to London to the Royal Marsden Hospital, they'd never heard of right. this, this surgical technique, and nor had they heard it at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Crazy. And there we are in WA with this brilliant new uh, um, it, it method, mm-hmm. and no one knows. Mm. So, so I hope that awareness gets raised, and 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 you know, I, and people then have to look and yeah, start talking yeah. and working together. Yeah, very important. Yeah. Well done, John. That's fabulous. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Thank you for sharing, mate. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. At Henrietta, I would like to start by acknowledging the magnitude of the loss you have suffered at the hands of sarcoma. And thank you so very much for the bravery you've shown in speaking with us today. Um, in the hope your story may help a family or family members who may be listening to this podcast and have also lost someone to sarcoma. Um, Henrietta, welcome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's good to be here and to speak to you. Um, let's talk a little bit about your son, Elliot. Um, if you can sort of share a little bit about how old he was when he was diagnosed. Yeah, um, Elliot was a second year university student, age 20, when he started complaining about a pain in his jaw. And uh, like many university students, his life was incredibly full of uh, nonstop uh, socialising and uh, doing what he loved best, which was acting and directing. And so he just had this manic life that he was living to the full and the sore jaw just went on one side for a while until eventually he went to the doctor and the doctor said oh you've got something called TMJ which is really common in young people it comes from grinding your teeth and you know another here's some anti-inflammatory that will help and they did seem to help for a while but then another month later he went back and then was sent to a specialist dentist and then eventually after a round of a few specialists he was sent for an MRI scan and there it was discovered that he had a tumour in his jaw. Um, took a, quite a while to get a full diagnosis. It was diagnosed as, first as a Ewing sarcoma, and then they decided it was a rhabdomyosarcoma, an embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, which is even rarer, and as type of sarcoma normally only appears in babies. So uh, not only was he one of the rarest sarcomas, the rarest sarcoma in a young adult, and it was missed for a long time. And that's tragic but it is also really easy to see how it was missed not just because of his lifestyle but because sore jaws are not what you expect to have um, a tumor in Mm -hmm. I think Um, yeah and uh, he was diagnosed in October 2015 I think it was finally yeah Elliot's journey was quite short wasn't it Um, yes tragically from from diagnosis Um, how yeah how did so that- he was diagnosed in October and he died on March the 1st the following year. And um, initially the diagnosis was that he would be cured with uh, a treatment protocol of chemotherapy and he was given that and it made no difference. And as this was going on, his jaw was swelling and incredibly painful. And he within about sort of mid-November, he could barely eat. Um, he was in incredible amounts of pain. So he was having a lot of um, cancer painkillers. Uh, then they tried that when that chemotherapy wasn't working, they switched to another protocol. Then they put him onto um, radiotherapy. And all throughout December, right the way up to Christmas, we were going for radiotherapy. Then they gave him a break over Christmas and the New Year so he could have some kind of holiday. And uh, in January, we went back and the chemotherapy protocol was changed again. Um, and But all this time, the pain was increasing and uh, it had already spread to his lungs by that time and he gradually became breathless. And by the end of February, well, no, by the beginning, second week of February probably, he went into hospital and tried another chemotherapy protocol and 
then he was on oxygen and and I mean it was and finally he had what they call the wonder drug. He died five days later. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was really fast and really tragic. And um yeah, it's 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 been a very um difficult thing to recover from, I think. I, I can't even begin to imagine. Um Henrietta were you and the family made aware that Elliot's passing was imminent as you got no. to that stage? Oh, well, yes. I mean, I, I think the consultant that he was under, mm-hmm. who I had a lot of respect for, his mantra was something will work and we will always look for the positive. Mm-hmm. So in retrospect, death was never mentioned the fact that the cancer had spread already into Elliot's lungs and therefore made it really bad was never mentioned. Elliot never asked a question about it. He was 20, so I wasn't allowed to ask questions either. He was treated as an adult. Mm -hmm. And he always just wanted to know, if this hasn't worked, what what will we try next? What are we going to do next? How are you managing my pain? But never did he once question in front of me or with the doctors when we were around was this terminal. And so it wasn't until right near the end that actually I was taken into a small room and told that he was going to die and that it was going to be really soon. And that was actually a real shock. And when I look back now, I think he must have known, but I didn't. I never wanted to take that in, you know. No, no. And I mean, having having such a great doctor who's so optimistic, you're always looking for the next thing, the next thing. Yeah. And the fact that we'd reached the end of the road wasn't actually. So then I said to the doctor, you know, you need to tell Elliot this. And he said, Elliot needs to ask me. Elliot never asked him. Mm-hmm. So we never had the con- a conversation about dying with Elliot, which made it very difficult afterwards. And it's something, obviously, you can hear that mm-hmm. I still struggle with. Mm-hmm. I think, though, that that was what Elliot wanted. And um, he he didn't want to talk about it because he didn't want to talk about it. And that was his way of coping. Mm-hmm. And we had, we, therefore, we had to cope with that, too. Yes, which, which while he's still with you, everyone has to respect. But, but when, when you sadly lost him, how, how did you cope? What were the mechanisms that you started to put into place to cope? Well, we had a dog. And I have to say the dog is the most important thing because when you own a dog, you have to get out of bed to walk a dog. And so our dog needed walking twice a day. And I got out of bed to walk the dog. And very often it was early in the morning and I might have been walking and tears are streaming down my face, but every day I was out, I was moving. Um, a lot of it's a blur. Um, we had some really good friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mother from Elliot's school made contact with me whose son had actually been killed in an accident, but at the same age. And she was really useful because she was like five years down the track. Um, A couple of other friends were really good. Some family members were amazing. And, you know, I mean, you just sort of got up and took one step in front of another and and days go on and life goes on, I suppose. Oh, dear. Are you okay? You can take a minute. No, 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 I'm fine. It's... um, I found a very good therapist. Mm-hmm. She was through somewhere called the National Centre for Childhood Grief. Mm-hmm. And um, she dealt mainly with parents who've lost a child. And I went to see her about three times. And she told me, you're a crier. And so as a way of processing, mm-hmm. I do get choked up. And that's just the way. And I don't, it doesn't worry me. It's annoying that my voice goes a bit croaky, but it doesn't worry me that I know that that's, in a sense, part of the the, the love that I had for my son is reflected, even four years later. Well, that's never going to change, is it? He was he was your son, and you had him for twenty years, and uh, and by all accounts, as I as I've heard from you and from others, that he was he was a very funny young man and, and life and soul. 
life yeah, itself. Yeah. Uh, Elliot had a, a mantra and I, 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 when I was, a, I was a teacher and I used to say to my children and my kids in my class, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, you know, the, the behaviour in classrooms. I taught just girls and they can be very mean to each other sometimes. Mm-hmm. But Elliot sort of lived by this mantra. He could see the good in everyone. Everybody loved him. Everybody wanted his advice. Everybody wanted him to be in their show. And um, his funeral had t- over, over a thousand people came to his funeral because he was just one of those people who was loved unconditionally by everyone. Did you, did you find that um, close friends and family treated you differently? Was it, was it, with, did they struggle with knowing what to say and how oh, to yeah. be? Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I think in this um, world that we live in, Australia, with uh, good good living standards and everything, we don't expect our children to die. Maybe if we were mothers in Syria or Iran or where there are wars, it would be different. Mm-hmm. But for a child to die is a shock, and it goes against uh, the sense of normality and the sense of how life should pan out. And so inevitably... But we'd, although we don't talk about death, we don't talk about grief. When I talk about Elliot, I get upset and people find that hard. And so it's much easier for people to avoid you or not know what to say. Some people have been fantastic. Other people were really good straight after and then they seem to have sort of drifted away. Some, so, some people in our family have been fantastic and some people have found it really hard. And certain people in, in the broader family have have really not known how to cope and therefore by not mentioning him is their way of not coping whereas we want to mention him at any moment you know so it's uh, I but I don't I don't um not cross about that I just think that's the way that we approach uh death and we don't have enough conversations about grief and dying and of course people don't know what to say no, I, I really, I really think they don't. Um, so, as a family, so to keep Elliot's spirit alive, you do talk about him as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, we definitely talk about him. I still have another daughter and a son. Yes, and and they talk about him. Elliot's friends see us. They come to dinner in large groups quite fairly regularly, and we talk about him. And we keep up with what they're. We Steve and I keep up with what his friends are doing. And we, we love them sharing what their life is going on about. And we follow a lot of them who are young performers now and young comedians and struggling very much at the moment. I feel so deeply for them. But, you know, working in that industry, uh, several of his friends are making a living in the industry and it, it's fantastic to see. Um, and and they share that with us. And we, we love that very much. I bet. I bet you do. Um what would you say um, Elliot's legacy was? Um, well, in terms of sort of things, you know, there's a scholarship named after him at his school rehearsal space, the Elliot Miller space. So there's a whole theatre oh, in his name there. Yeah, there's awards giving out in his name for comedy awards, for theatre sports give out an award in his name um, and an improvisation school give out an award in his name. So those sort of things are there and they mean a lot to us and we you know we keep an eye on who's got those and that and that's good i think um a, a bigger legacy is watching um his friends and his brother and sister not being afraid to take risks and living life to the full knowing that something around the corner could happen and that you know, a lot of them have followed what I would call their dreams and their passions into a life in the arts, which is difficult and particularly difficult right now. Mm-hmm. But they know that that's where, you know, that that's what they wanted to do. And and that's what he would have wanted them to do, because that's what he wanted to do. Um, looking back, is is there anything you would have done differently after Elliot received his, his diagnosis? Um. Because it happened so quickly, I would have, I don't know, I wonder sometimes if the doctors actually knew that this would be really quick or if it caught them unawares as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think they had enough difficult conversations with us. I don't think they had enough difficult conversations with Elliot. 
it was always difficult to get extra information because mm. he was 20. But a 20-year-old who's very, very sick is actually behaving like a five-year-old, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but it was it's hard. Mm -hmm. You know, if I look back, I don't know that we would have done anything difficult, different in terms of his treatment. And the doctors and nurses, they were amazing. And it seemed to me that they were really trying their best for Elliot. So I have nothing, I have no qualms about thinking, oh, we should have gone somewhere else or mm -hmm. we should have tried somebody else's treatment or anything like that. There's no point in thinking that. I think, though, I would have liked a few more, um, a little a little bit more warning. Yes, yes. Um, I know that you have, um, you wrote during um, your whole experience and your journey. Did, did that, was that very yeah. cathartic for you? Oh, absolutely. Would you recommend others maybe doing something <laughs> well, similar? <laughs> so the, the minute that Elliot was diagnosed, we just had these constant texts and emails and phone calls. And we have a lot of family who live overseas in England. And I just thought, I can't cope with this. So I thought, well, I, I, I had blogged as a teacher before, so I know what a blog is and I had to write a blog mm -hmm. or maintain a blog. So I started a blog. It was called Smush Pray Love. And um, it was a blog about his treatment. And it was supposed to be a blog about how his journey and how he got well. And of course, it ended up being so much more. And so I, I would write a post um, every day or a few days because also at that time I had given up work so that I could take Elliot to treatment because it was in and out of hospital constantly, back and forth. He wasn't allowed to drive because of the number of drugs that he was on. And I was pretty bored at home. And so blogging for me was a way of connecting with our audience, who grew to be this enormous audience, in fact, but started out just being friends and family. And then responding back to me, I, I read all the comments, you know, there were beautiful comments that came in. And then sometimes I used to blog about recipes and Elliot would say, what are you blogging about recipes for? That's nothing to, nothing That's nothing to do, do with me. me. What a load of rubbish. But it was just sort of, well, you know, this is what I'm doing today sort of thing. I've made these. And, um, uh, yeah, when when, um, when Elliot died, I, I collected all of that and I turned it into a book in the end, which I sold to friends and family as a memorial, I suppose, as a way of remembering him. But for me, having a blog to share information, to write down, it meant I took notes when I was in meetings and you don't forget the stuff. You don't remember all the things the doctor's telling you. So having taking notes and then turning that into a blog post was A, cathartic, B, made sense of all the different treatment plans, see, explain to people that know, you know, what was going on. And I found that really useful. Oh, I think that's fantastic advice. Henrietta, is there any other advice you would like to share to someone listening who is walking this unspeakably difficult road? One of the most difficult things that I had to think about after he died was answering the question, how many children do you have? Because when you've lost a child... How to answer that actually is something that has to take planning. And my counsellor taught me this. She said, you have to, you have to go, you have to decide what to say and say it. And so what I always say is that I have three children, but only two eat my love anymore. It's it's ridiculous, but it is. You have to plan for those difficult questions. And if you can plan for those difficult questions and prepare a statement in advance, and usually I can say it without cracking up, if I can do that, it means I, I'm acknowledging... Hang on. I find... That if I uh, if I was to say I only had two, that's wrong. If I say I have three, but don't say any more details, that's also wrong. So it depends on the situation, because obviously if you're seeing a new hairdresser and you're never going to see them again, they don't need to know <laughs> the details and make everybody cry. But most of the time, I will say I had three. I have three children, and, and my Elliot died. Henrietta, thank you from the bottom um, of my heart and certainly of all of those people listening for, for coming on and sharing 
your journey and the the wonderful legacy that Elliot has left behind and the fact that you will be able to help others by by you know what you've been through so thank you thank you it's been a pleasure I I mean I'm it's it's four and a half years it gets here but it never goes away and if I can just do a, a little bit to a remember Elliot and b help others and um, I'm really happy to do so so thank you no it's been my pleasure thank you Henrietta thank you again well welcome to the podcast Sue lovely to see you thank you for having me uh, now we should point out uh, any background noise is courtesy <laughs> of your granddaughter Lola age six months isn't it that's correct yes <laughs> she's a bundle of joy so we're here to talk about uh, your journey and, and your journey with your son, Daniel. Um, yes. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how Daniel's sarcoma presented? Um, Daniel, well, he was a very fit young man. He loved motorbike riding, surfing, gym, all of those sort of things. So he's very sporty. And then probably I would you sort of look back how long time-wise, but within a couple of months before diagnosis, he started complaining of uh, lower leg pain. Um, so he went off and did physio and things like that, and they strapped it, and it seemed to give him some relief. So we sort of put it down to too much exercise and the type of sport he was doing, you know, a bit high intensity, that it was probably a muscle strain. And then because it didn't obviously um, obviously improve a great deal, and then one day when he went off motorbike riding, his foot slipped off the peg and it seemed to you know, obviously rotated out a fair bit and he had excessive pain from there. So we went off and had further investigations. And then, yeah, lo and behold, yeah, there's this lower leg tumour that he had in his bone. Was, mm. it, was it picked up quite quickly by the doctor? Um. Look, I would say our GP was awesome and the fact that um, the x-ray came back saying there was um, a healing, old healing fracture, but he hadn't actually fractured anything there to have a you know, mm-hmm. healing fracture and he sent him on to the orthopaedic specialist to be further tested and then the orthopaedic specialist sort of went, oh, I don't think it's anything sinister. I don't think there's anything. We won't, you know, it'll heal, it'll improve. And then I think because of my nursing background, he went, mm, we might just do a couple more tests just in case. So off we went and, yeah, um, then it came back that it was an osteosarcoma and it shocked, obviously, the orthopaedic specialist too because you couldn't visually see anything on an X-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until he had the CT scans and the MRIs that it picked it up. So with, with your nursing background, were you across um, what, um, what sarcoma uh, was? Oh, the day I, <laughs> yeah, once, yeah, I've um, had another colleague, her daughter passed away, and I'm probably about 20 years ago now. And yeah, and I had worked in the orthopaedic wards. And yeah, so I had been and, and knew that it wasn't a good diagnosis to have. So yeah, it was a bit of a shock, really. Oh, I can, I can only imagine. Um can you tell me a little bit uh, about what you miss the most about Daniel? Oh, just everything really, isn't it? You know, just he was such an uh, easygoing kid and very friendly, you know, bubbly. He liked to give us cheek, of course, and, you know, be a bit of a mischief one. But, you know, Daisy would come in here and say, oh, Mum, just chill, Mum, chill. Sometimes just not hearing his voice is just, yeah, that's good. But just in general, everything about him because he was such a, easygoing kid to hang around with and he was his father's little shadow you know like he just mimicked everything that Jeff did and yeah so I think Jeff lost his you know lost his best mate but um yeah so he was just a good kid easy yeah I think uh, Lola's come along at the right time hasn't she I think for everyone (laughs) most definitely yes she does make our days easier and worthwhile obviously to continue on yes now I can I can yeah. uh, I can imagine that she's definitely helped, and she looks <laughs> like Daniel. You've showed me photos before we, yes, we chatted, so yes, around around the mouth, very very yes. much. So. Yeah, there's features in certain angles, and then there's other days she looks nothing like him. Yes. And, but then other things you see. I think we all look for something. Yeah. In him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> were Were you aware Daniel's passing um, was imminent? Was it something that the um, medical team had, had prepared you for? I would say we probably. Oh, yes and no. They had said when we got down to the stage probably the last six weeks when he all of a sudden developed pain. So up until the final six weeks, he'd never had pain. 
with any wow. of this, like except for that initial sort of muscle pain at the beginning. But through all these treatments and everything like that, and they kept on always checking in. I'm saying, have you got any pain from the tumours that he had? And nothing. Um, so in that last six weeks, all of a sudden he'd gone from no pain to um, having to call the ambulance wow. one day. His girlfriend had to call the ambulance. He just couldn't get up. Um, he had so much pain. And then that just snowballed and declined. And I think... He lived in hope. We'd get him on that pain medication and it'd sort it out and then we could wean him off that pain medication and it'd be magically cured again. But obviously that didn't happen. So six weeks he had pretty much the pain and we did start to get it under control and in his final week he probably was under control and he felt so good that um, he wanted to go jet skiing. Wow. So... And um, anyway, that was his passion. He wanted to get back between a motorbike or a jet ski. Mm-hmm. So on the Monday he went off jet skiing with Jeff and the cousins. And, and of course, that was the day I said, oh, no, I've got too much work to do, catch up on in the office. I won't come. But that's a day I regret not doing because seeing him have so much fun doing it. And then probably as the week progressed, he, yeah, declined and all of a sudden pain. So his tumour in his lung bled out. Okay. Um, and that was, um, he was bleeding internally. So we've gone from one minute thinking he was, oh, yeah, we can cruise along a bit more. The trial drug may come out, help him out. But then, yeah, this tumour, obviously, I, I think the jet skin obviously probably exacerbated, ruptured it more for it to continue to bleed. And then, yeah, he woke up on the Friday morning just really pale and I said, oh, mate, I think you need a blood transfusion. Thinking another blood transfusion may fix something. And when we walked in and they did a couple of tests on him and a scan, they said, oh, my God, we don't know how you've walked in here. Oh, wow. You shouldn't be alive with where what was happening inside his chest. Yeah, so, and then the next morning he passed away. Oh, I'm so sorry. So how how did you cope when, we you know, when, when Daniel passed? Did, did, did you start to talk to somebody? Did you have a therapist? Um, so in our journey we met... Um, six other families that we became quite good bonds with and friends with. So us mums and even the dads, we text regularly about how we're travelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been an awesome support. So I haven't actually gone off to see anyone particularly in counselling, but that support group's been awesome. Um, my friends are amazing as well. Um, they, you know, in that first, you know, first month's, and it's still that journey. I can go on and we go on our walks and if I feel like ranting and raving about it, they listen and they just walk beside you and, mm-hmm. and go on the journey with you. So they have been awesome in that regard. Did a lot of reading on, you know, how other people have travelled through the journey and picked up tips on how to try and, you know, go forward. Mm-hmm. And one thing, you know, grieving is so exhausting. It is just an exhausting Oh, yeah, you can you can go down the black hole, and I can see where people sometimes don't come back out of the black hole. Um, but just reading about grieving, you've got to give your brain a rest from grieving and allow yourself that. So, and it may have been a little bit too early. I went back to work um, about four weeks later to my job, and my colleagues were amazing as well. I had a buddy for two weeks, so if I didn't, you know, because I'm in quite in charge of the area um, and have to run the floor. So I had a buddy that walked beside me and if I had to go away, she stepped in and, and ran the show. So, yeah, I think going back to work allowed me to give my brain a rest from grieving and focus on something else, um, which I think helped. So when I look back now, I go, oh, my God, how did I actually go back and yes. do that? Yes. I think you're just in that numb. You just do it as a... Mm-hmm. Yeah, without sort of thinking about it too much. Yeah, would you have done that differently? You know, looking back now, or do you think that you just needed to get back to work to focus on, as you said, something else? Something else. Yeah. Yeah. For me personally, I think I needed to go back. Mm-hmm. I, I was here, and I was a blubbering mess sitting around my house all day. And yeah, and I can see one of the other girls have just recently lost the last one of our group. He's finally Tom passed away two months ago. Leanne. Yeah, she doesn't like to leave the house. She wants to be around what his stuff is. So I can see, yeah, everyone's different on how they how they cope. have to get through yes. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it definitely made a difference for me um, to go back to work. Um, yeah. What What do you believe um, was Daniel's legacy? 
live life and live life for him and do things now that, you know, he's not able to do. That was something he said to the night he passed away, all his mates, they all flew down the highway and we had a party in his room. But um, that's what he told them all to, go and live life for him and do the things that he can't do anymore. So that's how we live our life. Yeah. That bit always gets me. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how I try to think, you know, that we've got to, you can't can't stop living. Um, And we've got two other beautiful children and now a granddaughter. Yes. And I can see how people can crawl up into a ball, but we have those two other wonderful children. Um, And Daniel, uh, I love him. You have to have a bit of black humour. When you're going through all this, mm. he kept on telling us, Mum, you've got two spares. You can't, <laughs> you know. You've got, you've got two toilet. spares. I love spares. that. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. And got he wasn't even the eldest, that, was he? He was a middle no, child. he was the middle child. You've got two spare children, you know, spares there, Mum. You've got to make sure that you keep going for them. So we have to, yeah, because yeah. obviously why, yeah, as much as there's days, there's so many days that you just want to. Yeah, right. And I do have my moments, I, mm-hmm. and I'm probably going you to know, break down a little bit more privately, you know, because I don't want people to feel sad for us or sorry for us. Or, but you know, yeah, our group of friends have been amazing mm-hmm. to support us. Yeah. So yeah, that's what we live for. Uh, Miss Lola. <laughs> Miss Lola, yes. Miss Lola. Um, yeah. So thanks so much for sharing. Yeah. I, I know it. Um, mm-hmm. I know it can't be easy, but it's it's so. Helpful, I think, for other people who will be listening, um, just yeah. just to just to hear different perspectives on 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 the journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there any before we finish? Is there is there any advice for those listening that you would oh. like to sort of share? <laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah. Tap into friends, lean on your friends as much as you can. I mean, as much as sometimes you don't want to burden them, but most of them are mostly they're they're happy to help you. I sometimes you worry that I might talk about, you know, sad stuff too much that you drive them away, but true friends won't leave you. No. You know, they'll be there. So I am mindful when I do sometimes. But we very openly still talk about Daniel. We don't um, not talk about him. So, And I think that has been a positive thing. So we, we, we just say, oh, Daniel would have loved this. You know, oh, Daniel, why? Like, so we do include him as still he's part of our family. He will always be part of our family. Acknowledging them, don't sort of think that you can't talk about them because they've got here. That's another big thing. Um, I suppose when it sometimes comes down to uh, some support for them, it's really they've got to accept it in the sense But Dan was one that never really opted in for counselling or anything like that. He didn't want people to pity him. He didn't want to be known as Cancer Daniel for people to feel sorry for him. So he wouldn't at all tap into like red kite, all those things. But I did, you know, I was the one that would be ringing them and support. We tried to get him into some other counselling, but he didn't do that. But he relied on his friends. And they were great. Um, so, yeah, if they can get some support, that's awesome. It just, yeah, it's really hard sometimes to make teenagers and young men okay. accept that yeah. sort of support. But our support group that we I made happen because um, we went privately through the private system. And as Dan would say, we'd sit in the waiting room, you know, waiting for him to go and start his chemo. He goes, oh, mum, there's some fresh meat here now, mum. Yeah, it's fresh. <laughs> so, you oh, know, I like the sense I, of humour. <laughs> yes, I may very much so. So I would actually then go and introduce myself yes. to those parents. And then we that's how we formed our group. And we'd just go for coffee that, you know, we might only be out of the room for 20 minutes, half an hour. But as mums, we'd all go off and have a coffee and and link up that way just to give each other a bit of support. So just tapping into stuff where you can. Everyone's different on what they obviously yeah. like. Yeah. I think that's great advice. That really is, So Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story and Daniel's and, and the, the families. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Not always. Thank you. Sarcoma Awareness Month is a time when we acknowledge those who are currently undergoing treatment and their families, survivors, those yet to be diagnosed, and the memories of those who walked this road, fought valiantly and tragically lost their lives to this cancer. Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation wish to recognise each of these brave individuals. 
together with the remarkable not-for-profit organisations dedicated to raising funding and awareness for sarcoma, including Rainbows for Kate, Kicking Goals for Zav, Hannah's Chance, Stony Steps Against Sarcoma, Joanna Sewell Research Grants, the GPA Andrew Assini Research Grants, and the Sarah Grace Foundation. With the generous help and support of the Australian community, each have worked tirelessly to fund critical research and to further shine a light on sarcoma.